Welcome to No Hype, the podcast about truth, science, and the future of marketing. Brought to you by your hosts, Allison Dietz and Devin de Blasio. Today's guest is Rob McGovern. Rob is a legend in the entrepreneur community, having built well-known businesses like CareerBuilder from the ground up. Today, he is the founder and CEO of Precise Target, providing customer insight and acquisition data to fashion brands in the rapidly evolving retail market. Uh, Rob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, and we're so glad to have you uh, here at No Hype. It's great to be here. Let's go. All right. So how did you go from career builder to precise target? Retail is a really interesting problem to me. <clears throat> it's a $4 trillion industry that's underserved. And to put that into perspective, the movie industry is only $42 billion. Auto is only $500 billion, Right? Retail is huge. And they've got a big data problem. And I personally don't think... Um, retail is going away. I don't think Amazon will control the world. I actually think what's going to happen is we talk about cars have become computers with wheels. I think tomorrow's retailer is going to be a data platform with stores. Oh, totally agree with that one. Yeah. And it's interesting. You, you talked about you don't think um, Amazon is going to take over the world. What would you say is the biggest trend impacting the retail industry today? Top of my list is velocity. So that what's been happening while we've been not paying attention is the flywheel is spinning faster and faster. So to get in, put in real terms, <clears throat> retail is traditionally uh, run on 14 week seasons, 14 weeks for spring, 14 weeks for summer, fall and winter. And that is the rate at which they, they change their assortment of products. Well, fast fashion came along. Zara now is on a two-week cycle. Every two weeks. They yeah, that's insane. It's so much faster. Yeah, it is. And now their store visits have gone sky high because it, it delights people to have new things every time. Right? And so velocity has changed, but that has also put increased emphasis on automation and AI and data because you just can't pedal that fast with humans alone. Right. And it's interesting because you mentioned store visits. We hear so much today about this shift from in-person to online shopping and how really that the pandemic has only accelerated that change. Do you think that's <laughs> hype? You know, what does the world of retail look like in a post-vaccine world? Oh, no, it, it's absolute change. <clears throat> so what what been happening is um, that channel mix from in-store to online was moving at about 1% per year. And, and, and right before the pandemic, we were about 90% in-store, 10% online. Well, the pandemic was a step change. We saw 10 years of change happen in a year. So we're now like more like an 80 20. It's interesting. It won't go back. I was I was going to jump in and say one of the things that you know in particular is, is the audience. You know, I think a lot of people were looking to see older people shift their behavior because maybe people or certain demographics who hadn't necessarily adopted that online shopping behavior and that has you know that's one of the things that sort of accelerated not just sort of, you know, the early adopters but sort of a more of a mass population adoption of of that online shopping. Yeah, it is. And and the the thing that's where I think many retailers have it wrong is the consumer doesn't think omni-channel. Mm -hmm. They think brand. 
Sure. Right. They have a relationship with you. One day they use their phone. One day they use their computer. One day they're in your store. Right. And, and that unification is a real opportunity for the retailer, but it also creates technology challenges. Right. Because if I go into the Amazon store, which is one of my neighborhood, I, I literally, as I'm checking out, I can look in the app and I can see my receipt. Right. Well, if I do that at Nordstrom, guess what? Right. You know, it's like, oh, that's a different channel. Right. And, but that's not the way the consumer looks at it. So do you think that, you know, with everything in terms of shifting into e-commerce, uh, how has that affected the retailer's ability to identify new customers? Has it been made it easier? Has it made it harder? Um, you know, Allison talked about the draw of kind of all ages and walks of life that have adopted this this kind of e-commerce delivered to my house because I don't want to go be around people. But has it made it harder or more difficult for the new acquisition process? Yeah, it's a little bit like if they um, like they jumped into a sword fight and they have a pen knife, okay. right? <laughs> if they're the traditional retailer, right? So that the digital IQ of companies is for retail brands is going to be a key differentiator. And um, <clears throat> like I, my view is they're going to have more data scientists um, than merchandisers in the future. Right. Mm -hmm. And so <clears throat> the, um, the idea that you're going to capture customers because they're going to be browsing the mall on a Saturday and need something to do is gone. Right. And right. it is a big data game right now. And the ones that can do it are going to win. So it's kind of been a double whammy for retailers, specifically ones you were mentioning, the, the, the newer retailers are entering into the digital market. Um, but the double whammy in terms of obviously a pandemic driving people inside their homes and not in stores, but also Apple and Google both taking you know control over how identifiers uh, can and if they're going to be shared. Uh, across those those party lines. So how do you see that impacting a level of personalization and engagement and maybe ability to track and actively in, in, you know use those data scientists um, that they're 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 you're building up and hiring um, has that how is that do you think it's going to impact them in terms of the cookie IDFA and other perishable identifiers? Yeah, so if we go back to the knife fight mm -hmm. and you know <laughs> many brands have their pen knives out that it's almost like that the boxing ring they're in has started to shift up and down and side to side, right. right? While they're trying to have this this sword fight with a pen knife, right? And so, um, IDFA and the elimination of third party cookies. I wish I could say it's all based on nobility, right? And noble actions. It's not, right? And it's based on protecting walled gardens, and um, and so um, now there are solutions to the problem. But that's what companies like Newstar do, and that's what companies, you know, like some of your competitors do, is to help brands bridge that gap. And, um, you know, the uh, I today, um, uh, to prepare for this uh, podcast, I went on to a major department store website. They dropped 23 cookies. 23 cookies that dropped on me in that one visit. Now, I have to tell those marketing people, when those go away, things are going to be different, right? The ability to retarget me and to reach me and do other things. And, um, and that, um, you know, the, the thing that I'm really harping on with my clients right now is, is I'm telling them, do the most basic thing, get your email marketing act together, 
right? Because um, that's an opportunity to get an open and drop an, to refresh your first party cookie, right? And we've learned that if you personalize that email, make it highly relevant, they'll open it. People don't hate email. Right. They hate bad email, right? And, um, and so it's part of the overall strategy. You have opportunities to reach customers and, and sometimes you need third-party help. Sometimes you can do it yourself, but when you do it yourself, you better do it right. So, I mean, you talked about those personalized experiences and how email is really the first step. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. Um, wh- what exactly do you think, you know, what exactly do you think the role of first-party data is in customer engagement? And how do you see retailers going out building that data set? Every retailer, with the exception of Amazon, faces the same problem which is sparse customer data, right? Mm -hmm. The biggest department store chain in this country that sells apparel does two transactions a year. The average prime customer is buying 100 items. So if you say to a data scientist, I know two things about this person, right? They're going to say, well, good luck with that. That's not going to (laughs) work, right? And so first-party data is really important, particularly if it includes identity. Right. But it's a foundational thing. It's not the end. And like, I can't enrich you if you can't identify you. Right. And um, and so <clears throat> we think um, the companies have to do a really good job identifying their customers and cleaning up in, um, their first party data graph because it does a lot of things, including a lot of personal experiences, but also enrich that data set with with other data. Um, so you can play in the game that Amazon and Target and Walmart are defining. And so like in terms of the data sources, what would you say, you know, are the most critical for a retailer to collect? So we talked about email, right? Um, that's the, obviously the easiest way to get into, into their lives, into their, into their email, onto their phone. Um, but what other types of identifiers you can include? What about like, uh, offline behaviors, you know, other types of digital behaviors, maybe the use of panels. What do you think the the plethora of, of, you know, of data points um, a retailer should be looking to invest in? Um, and is there, is there a good mix for a particular type of retailer? So demographic data is a good starting point, right? Is, is you know, append that to your identity data. <laughs> but the problem is, I don't know about you, but the last time I've been, went to a high school reunion, Everyone matched my demographic, but we sure didn't look the same. So Amazon, they have a, a hundred columns of data on every customer and you have three, right? You need help and mm-hmm. you need to bring uh, additional data in. Now, the, one of the, I, I think, um, flaws in typical retail marketing is based on repurchase algorithms. You bought colon shoes, I'm going to assume you're going to buy them again. We actually show that doesn't work. (laughs) For most people under 35, they have negative repurchase rate on brands. They're less likely to buy. Yeah. Once they fall into a demographic category, yeah, they they keep them in that category for too long, right? Versus quickly refreshing the taxonomy. That's right. And so what we, um, um, so so you need richer data about the customer. And what I think offline data and other things, I view them as attributes that are really good for modeling, right? Is that if I wanted to model my customer base, if I have eight demographic columns, that's good. If I have 500 columns, I can make more granular segmentations. And 
knowing that you play mm-hmm. tennis or knowing that you mm-hmm. ski or knowing that you drive a hybrid car is information that allows me to differentiate you from another customer, right? In a model. Yeah. Improve suggestions for sure. I mean, that's one of the things that I think Amazon does really well, which is give you those suggestions of what else you might buy as opposed to repurchasing. You're getting, an ex, you know, you're getting a greater interest from the, the wide assortment that you may offer. Yeah. And they're to also those types pushing you down further into a rabbit hole of your own making, right? They're, they're, they're allowing you to refine your own mm-hmm. audience segment through the suggested, um, products and services that they're offering to you, I guess, just products. Um, so I really want to touch upon uh, protection. You know, well, I was just going to say, I'm, I'm, something that fascinates me about Amazon, I couldn't understand why is their personalization so bad, right? Why do you and I see the same sneakers, right? <laughs> but we don't have the same purchases. And then I figured it out. Right. They want to be a media company. That their business, last year's revenue, $20 billion in sponsored listings. They want to sell the placement wow. as opposed to personalize the placement. And that just to yeah. me is fascinating. <clears throat> I mean, obviously having um, your own, you know, uh, your own data that you're bringing into the mix, whether it's you're building a model or whether you're bringing other assets into it, like obviously that's proprietary, you know, that's your secret sauce as a retailer. Um, that's what's going to differentiate you in a market. So in terms of protection, what have you seen work or not work? for retailers to, to really keep that data close to the vest, keep it inside their own walls, but also make sure there's no data leakage or any sort of potential uh, issues in terms of compliance. Yeah, you know, with CCPA <clears throat> and pseudonization, this, this is very topical. And now the choice we made is we actually use Newstar to be the trusted keeper of identity. And, and that is, so if you hack into us, you can't get to anything. You can only get to a pseudonized ID that's the true ID is held somewhere else. And um, and so that's important. I'll tell you one of the tests I have for every every time I see a hacker report, anytime I see this bank, this retailer, or this party was broken into and they stole the passwords, I say run the other way, right? Because no one store should ever store clear text passwords. Right, all passwords should be encrypted in a hash. That way, if someone breaks in, they can only get the hash; they can't get the password. And I think um, Twitter recently had, or not recently, last couple of years had a break in. People got passwords. It's like, who the hell are you people to store clear text? And so, some of it is, is best practice, and that's why when you log in and you lost your password, they make you create a new one because they can't decode the hash. They make you redo it. So I, how about data collaboration in that environment? Because, you know, we're seeing more and more um, engagement where, you know, retailers, you know, either retailer to retailer share, data sharing or retailer to brand data sharing. Do you see an opportunity for greater data sharing in the industry, you know, despite those limitations that you just mentioned? Between retailers and, let's say, a wholesale brand, like that kind of thing? Yeah, or re- retailer to retailer. I mean, like you said, you know, all of these retailers are in this environment where there's sort of the data rich and there's the data poor, even within the retail industry. So how does the, how do we facilitate greater data sharing so that retailers can yeah, maximize that I, I think there's that a big opportunity. opportunity. And one, uh, and this is not a commercial for Newstar, but you're positioned to help with this, right? That, um, that So let's say, like, between a wholesale brand and a retailer, there's natural tension. So let's say arbitrarily you're Calvin Klein 
and I'm Nordstrom. Well, you don't want to tell me, uh, I don't want to tell you who my Calvin Klein customers are because I'm afraid you're going to steal them. You're going to conquest them and go direct, right? But Calvin Klein's saying to Nordstrom, tell you what, we'll give you co-op dollars if you target the best customers at Nordstrom for my products. Well, Precise Target knows both, right? We know the, all the Nordstrom customers. We know all the Calvin Klein customers. And what a neutral third party can do is say, let us create a data set in a third party haven that is de-identified. It's only pseudonymized IDs. No one can see the names. We know the names, right? And, and so there are ways of doing that. The co-ops tried to do this early on in permissioning, say that you can see my data, but they were very limiting. In this case, I think it would be better as if there was a neutral party that says, let me broker something for you and protect everyone's privacy, but at the same time, give you both what you want. You want to sell more Calvin Klein, you want to sell more product notion. Yeah, that, that's that's where we see the f- features. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that, I mean, you know, selfishly, that's where we sit in the ecosystem, and we see the the opportunity between retailers and CPG to bridge that gap and kind of ease those frictions using you know data collaboration. I think is really um, really the value there, right? And I think that even as you start to see what the targets and the Amazons and the WalMarts build up their media cycles or their, their media empires, um, that's going to become even more valuable for retailers to kind of start knocking on their doors. Um, kind of becoming a part of that, those new, you know, walled gardens. Yeah. One of my big worries is, you know, you really need um, a lot of data competence to do these kinds of things. And um, the, um, the typical brand that we deal with doesn't have those, those jobs. And they look to us as an outsourcer or new stars and outsourcer, but there is help out there. And I think that, um, um, the, the new world is the data science world. They have to play. I love that. I think, you know, you've mentioned a lot about data scientists and, the, and their role in the industry in the future. Um, and, and we've been talking a lot about, you know, the customer experience and current customers and, and how, do you, how do you grow that lifetime value. But one of the things that I'm curious about and one of the challenges many retailers have is, is really expanding their customer base. So how do you, how do retailers reach new customers today? We looked at, 5 billion transactions. And we tried to figure out why people make decisions. And we, it really scared us when we saw negative repurchase rates on brands, right? We said, wow, we thought there were Nike people and we thought there were Under Armour people and there really don't seem to be. Um, but then we took a step back and looked at it. So what are we seeing? And we said, wow, people make purchases are remarkably similar to their previous purchase. So as an example, the jeans in your closets are not all the same brands, but they're remarkably similar. Same style, same size, same price. You have white lines, right, for jeans. So we said, what do we figure that out, right? And then Mm -hmm. we did that. So we built this taste graph of like the entire universe. And then we said, what if we targeted people by taste? Conversion went up 50%. Five zero percent versus a brand repurchase. So what we learned is people, their purchases are driven by their personal taste. You know, if I held up five sweaters and said, what do you think? You're really answering 
that one's my taste, right? I was going to say that reminds me of, you know, the the different platforms that have, you know, come into the retail space, you know, from a digital first, digitally native platforms like Stitch mm-hmm. Fix and Rent the Runway. I mean, they're really leaning on that data, that type of data in order to make those recommendations, aren't they? Yeah, they are. And the, I think they have a lot of human in what they're doing. And for the Nordstrom's, Macy's and, you know, big companies like that, they're going to have to do with automation. There's just too many customers. But the good news is there is good data, right? We have 30 attributes on every SKU in America right now, right? And so we know the feature set of products and we can fit them to people's tastes and and so automation's here. You think it'll continue to be here? So that's a question I have in terms of acquisition and the tools in which, you know, the retailers are utilizing acquisition today in the supply chain and with all their their mad tech, you know, uh, partners. Um, do you find that that process, that supply chain process, that acquisition process will drastically change? Will automation increase, decrease, or will, will it just be something different? We don't really know uh, what to, to guess yet. Well, so... <clears throat> In every podcast, it might be a tradition of mine to offend my host's worst, uh, best customer. So I'll tell you that the, um, I think the most broken part of the ecosystem in retail is in the agency, right? Because the, the incentives are misaligned. So your shoe brand, you want to sell more shoes. You go to your agency. What do they want to do? Sell more media because media is how they make money on commissions. In fact, a good ad campaign might make you buy less media, right? And so so the incentives are misaligned and we're really encouraging our customers is get involved in acquisition, right? Measure it, really be focused on targeting and really be focused on why you're targeting people and, and for what reasons and um, the because the agencies aren't. They're not doing data science. They're selling media. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the other things that comes up in that kind of environment when you are more actively involved is 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 cost. So, you know, do you have any suggestions for retailers about how they can manage those costs for customer acquisition? Yeah, well, <clears throat> we <clears throat> we're like the opposite of the agency. We always say start small, right? A B test the heck out of it. Let's get to the right target set and then scale it. Right. And um, because the, the, the most depressing thing is wasted ad dollars, right, is shooting, you know, money. You might as well just be throwing it out the back of your car as you were driving on the road. Right. And, <laughs> and so and that's what bad targeting does. If you target the wrong people, you're wasting money. And I'd rather see a much more narrow model to start. Really, let's prove it. And then once we get that, then scale that. And um, and measurement is really key and it's not natural to the non-nerds of the world, right? I was with an agency recently and I asked them how they picked the data. And they said, um, well, I picked the one that looks the best in the trade desk data store. And I say, well, do you measure it? And this young gentleman said, we do not have time for that. We do not have to isolate one. You guys are crazy. This is crazy land. Right. It's interesting. You said you said measurement and you've been talking about A-B testing. What kind of KPIs do you encourage the retailers to look at? You know, what does success look like for them? So, you know, 
cost per click and click-through rate and conversion rates are, are all key. You know, what we really look at, <clears throat> are you acquiring the customers who fit your brand? And here's why that's important. <clears throat> Someone who buys an on-sale product one time and never comes back is a really expensive way to do business, right? If you acquire a customer who loves your brand and can love your brand and you can create high lifetime value, you might be willing to pay more for that customer. And what we do is we have a model for a brand, a data model. And when we someone's acquired, we hold them up to it and say, where does this person score on this brand? Right? And is this someone you should invest in? And that is, um, you know, in, in data science, we call it expert adaptive. What you really want to do is you want to continually check yourself, check your agency, check it, and tune your acquisition based on the results you're seeing against a superlative set of the customer you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we talk a lot at Newstar about incrementality and how do you how do you know for sure that you're driving incrementality with your ad spend? So it's, it's a really similar concept in that you know it's important for marketers just to make sure that they understand what is you know what is really driving success and and how are, how do you know that what you're doing is is incrementally growing the brand as opposed to you know more of the same and and it's interesting to take that the consumer lens on it and to really say how does this fit with what you've already seen as successful for the brand um, if you think about this past year in particular what do you think some lessons are that retailers have learned um, in terms of how they can improve their relationship with consumers um, or shoppers? And and how do you th- and what do you think has actually hurt those relationships? Well, see, I think that the, um, the inevitable is here, right? We knew the customers were going to go more online and it's happening. So it's changed fashion, right? I call it waist up fashion, right? I, I am wearing more <laughs> pants, but not always, right? And uh, <laughs> in, in doing my job. But the um, um, I think that what I really encourage retailers to do is collapse the omni-channel. See, what happened is these fiefdoms grew up in retailers. There were the in-store people, there were the online people, and there were the mobile people. Mm-hmm. And they treated them like three channels. That's not the way the consumer looks at the world, mm-hmm. right? The consumer views you as one thing, and they just happen to be wherever I am, I'm going to shop with you, right? And and so um, the relationship with that customer is really important. Like uh, Home Depot is a customer that um, 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 has integrated in-store with uh, their mobile app. So as you check out, the receipt goes right in the app. You know what the coolest thing about that is for them? I'm using my app in their store. They have my identity now. Mm -hmm. They know I'm there, right? And um, geolocation, yep. And Sephora is doing something really awesome. I don't know if you shop at Sephora, but here's what they did. You know, we used to think, talk about consumers are going to showroom and they're on their mobile phone. They're actually shopping somewhere else. Hmm. Here's what Sephora did. You can try on the makeup in the store with their app. Your image in the app, it's a virtual you. It's like a VR thing. And you can use a QR code Mm -hmm. on some makeup and it puts it on your face, hmm. right? Well, now I'm using the app. You have my identity. I'm in your store. You know I'm in, in the store. You know what I'm looking for. You're seeing my shopping behaviors. You also know if it looks good on me, mm-hmm. right? So they're <laughs> creating this environment 
that the user wants to use the app right. in the store and it is all synergistic. And that's, I hope the retailers see that as, you know, the future is integrate digital, not use as an alternative. Right. It's, it's really an improved customer experience. And it, it's interesting. It kind of reminds me of the advertising world too, because you know, we, have had, we have similar things when we talk to agencies, you know, some, you know, within the brand, someone's managing TV, someone's managing digital, someone else is in charge of social. But really on the consumer side, you see the brand in all of those places. It's very similar right. from a retail perspective. You know, it's just about having a unified customer experience, which right. is connected because the consumer has no idea that there's three different people managing that. They want to know, this is how I interact with your brand, these are the messages I see across these channels and across these these devices or platforms, and I want to make sure that I have a similar positive experience across all of them. That's that's exactly right, and yeah, you're one entity to the consumer, and you should act like it. <laughs> and so we talked about the interconnectivity. It seems like of the experience, both digitally as well as physical. And so I want to kind of come back to the topic of identity. And so I think identity has taken on a lot of definitions over the past few decades, um, specific for retailers who I seem to be always on the cutting edge of being able to gain access to more information about consumers, because I feel like retailers are always going to have greater access to those, you know, bits and bytes, um, because they're more, you know, built on that relationship between their brand and that consumer, as you said, over time, right? So what role is identity really playing in terms of the future state of marketing, specifically for retailers versus maybe someone in the QSR or CPG space? Is there something unique to retailers and the future state of, of our industry that um, that identity will play a, a key role in kind of you know amplifying their business? Yeah, it's table stakes. <laughs> Right, you can identify the customer, right? So I, I can't name this brand. It's a brand you might be wearing. It's one of the biggest ones out there. That I walked into this customer, and they can identify twenty four percent of their customer base. I said, "Wow, right?" So you're, you're, you know, you don't know who your customer is. Yeah. How scary is that, right? And um. And so, how do you build a product for them? How do you know what to, to offer? I know, and and so, like, here's the way I look at it: is if you are a brand and you're going to play in this sword fight, right, against Amazon and Walmart and Target and all the other big guys, you're going to need additional data. You don't have enough, period, right, to play in a data science-driven world. I cannot enrich you if you can't identify that customer, right? If you have some spurious identifier, right? You, I can't you give you one, data, right? Yeah, right. And you're, and that means you're going to fail. You need data, right? right? So, so it's table stakes. Mm -hmm. I can't personalize an experience for you if I can't identify you, and um, I might not be able to reward you, and um, and um, and so I just think that uh, it is table stakes. The brands um, uh, it, 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 that are under most are underinvested here, and it's really a shame. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh at that, but I mean it's, it's it is it is a shame in terms of because again, it's about a lasting relationship, right? It's about reputation, and I feel like when a brand is in the news for doing something incorrectly with data. Um, that's a huge, you know, impact to to their long term, you know, uh, you know, viability of that brand. And so, when we think about the relationship between the consumer and the retailer, it's probably the strongest out of any other vertical that may exist, other than maybe car, you know, the auto industry. Um, 
how do you see privacy legislation playing into that? We talked about Apple and Google, but like, you know, CCPA, CPRA, the recent kind of announcement in Virginia with the passing of their bill. Um, do you see that the retailers that you speak with, are they taking this seriously? Are they putting things in place to make sure that compliance is adhered to? And do you think this is going to evolve the relationship between the consumer and the retailer over time? Maybe, probably, you know, we'll see. But see, I think the ad tech industry has created this uh, view that through the wrong side of the prism. See, I don't view CCPA as a privacy law. I view it as a control law. It's putting the consumer in control. Right. And saying you are in control of your identity and your data and you at any time can tell us, you know, can demand what I know about you. And so, like, I think it's one of these things where people love Spotify. They love recommendations for music. It's all based on their data. Right. And aggregating with everybody else's and um, and Netflix is doing the same thing. People don't want to give those personalized experiences up because there's a payoff. And what turns people off is when they get retargeted, like they're being stalked all over the web. They look at a product, they feel like they're, you know, this product stalking them. And so consumers, I think are, they don't want to be exploited. They want to be empowered. They want to be empowered to make good decisions and do, Hmm. and do good things. And, um, and that's the thing that if I were a brand, I would really want to say, sort of have a rights agreement. Here's your rights that you have, and I'm not going to exploit you. In fact, I'm going to put you in control of it. I'm not going to bury it in some terms of service that's three links deep on the website. I agree. I think that's where the industry is shifting to with a lot of the, you know, the recent changes and the recent updates and and with Apple's announcement. I think there will be a lot more push to have consumer awareness of what they're really, what they're really buying into. But to your point, you know, there are a lot of positives that come out of it as well, such as the personalized experiences. And especially if a consumer chooses to, to build a trustful relationship with that retailer or that brand, you know, they expect the, the retailer or the brand to, to hold up their end of the bargain in terms of, you know, making sure that they keep their data safe um, and they don't exploit that data. But at the same time, you know, with that comes a lot of benefit. So, you know, I think we, we in the industry need to make sure we promote that side of things. Yeah, we, we did a project for a major sporting goods retailer recently that was really interesting <clears throat> that they were sending a purchase confirmation transaction, you know, got your order. You know, it's a confirmation and they wanted to put an offer, put offers in there, in that email. And so we personalized those offers for the consumer. The open rate went up 3x and the conversion rate doubled. Now, all they did was service the customer. And it drives me insane when the biggest retailers in the world send me the same email they send you. And that that, that, frequency doesn't help either. They send it so many times. Yeah, and that's when I can push the spam button. But I don't push spam on uh, Spotify. It's like, this uh, this is a quid Mm -hmm. pro quo, right? I'm getting something out of this. Mm -hmm. And I think if the retailers service the customer with personalization, service them better, they're not going to push people pushing the spam button. Right. So it's almost like the responsibleness of a retailer is becoming a competitive advantage, right? So it's just that easy for a brand to use your data responsibly and be transparent about how that relationship is being constructed and maintained versus a retailer who may just not choose to be as transparent 
And that's just kind of an easy call for, like you said, for you as a consumer, just to say, you know, delete, unsubscribe, you've lost my business just from the basis, just because of the basics of not really being a responsible, you know, data handler. (laughs) That's right. Well, think about um, travel. You know, there's a time when we had travel agents and I remember everybody. There was a time when we traveled. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. When we did travel and people, you know, were really aghast travel agents were going to go away and we're going to use Expedia. I actually view the intimacy with Expedia far higher than I ever had with a travel agent. They have all my information. They know where I like to stay in New York. They always have those places. They have all my frequent flyer numbers. They have my credit cards. I think there's a certain level of intimacy with this relationship. Do they have all my PII? Absolutely. They know everything about me, about my travels and things like that. But I'm willing to do that because there's a benefit, mm-hmm. is it helps my travel go easier. More convenient. I'd never yeah, want to go back easier. to travel. It's more convenient. And that's sort of the, where the mm-hmm. retailer has to get to, is that if the consumer is getting a benefit, they're willing to be less private. If you're going to exploit them and retarget them and stalk them, ixnay on that A. <laughs> right. And so what's next? I mean, what do you what do you think is the next big thing for the retail world and, and for and, and the role that precise target can play in, in that space? Yeah. And so I hope that your podcast is a good place to breaking news because I'll just tell it all to you now and you can make of billions of dollars. Yeah. So no, so here's the thing. Um so Amazon will not win this whole game. Contrary to popular belief, the brands are actually pulling out of it. It's because you can't make money there. You lose control of your customer. And so, and there's a lot of creative creativity left in the world to create fashion and brands and experiences. There, there will be other places to buy things. But you see, I kind of look at it like this. <clears throat> in the last decade, we saw uh, advertising transform to something we now call programmatic. There used to be creative people in advertising. Now it's all algorithms and computers. And and advertising, online advertising is a big programmatic thing. Retail is going to go programmatic with two-week assortment change velocity and the amount of data that's available. And with artificial intelligence, you know, as an example, that um, artificial intelligence might not be a robot walking through the store telling you what to buy, but it probably would do a pretty good job telling that retailer what to assort in their assortment of products. Why is that important? Well, in retail, the money's made on the buying, not the selling. If they assort the right products, that's how you win. And data can help there. So tomorrow's retailer is going to be a data platform. And it's going to be really exciting. It's going to be exciting for people like us that are in the middle of this and that can help them. And um, and I think that, um, you know, we're going to be living in a higher velocity world of more personalized experiences that uh, all retailers won't survive, but new ones will. And the new ones that will, will mm-hmm. be data, data savvy, high digital IQ kinds of companies. And it's going to be good for the consumer. Yeah. It sounds like a great place to shop. Yeah. Well, of course, your robot will be doing That's the fine. shopping for you. I think everyone's going to get used to not interacting with uh, sales associates and people. Um, I think that will be better or for worse for some people. And so the, the brands who lean into the uh, 
the uh, the nature of not wanting to move out of your own home, I think, will benefit uh, a vast number of people who come out of this uh, this this COVID state uh, in a different mindset. Mm-hmm. To your point earlier, <laughs> convenience. I think consumers consumers are getting used to that convenience, and to, and I think those retailers who have those data assets are going to be able to enable that. I sometimes wonder if you were. I live in a, an old neighborhood, and say if you were designing this neighborhood today, would you put like rails to deliver like a cart every day to deliver this stuff, and like the UPS truck up and down my street every day, right? <laughs> stops at every house. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Rob, thank you so much for your time. It was great to chat with you. It was it was fascinating to hear your perspective on the future of retail. Um, and you know, we look forward to seeing the role that both New Start and Precise Target can play in that world. So thank you again for your time. Thank you. It was enjoyable.